0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado, from our series, Crux, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats, and as you're doing that, if you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Middle school class, by the way, is meeting just down the stairs, so if there's any middle schoolers, go ahead and make your way over there. Uh, For the past several weeks now, we have been studying through Paul's letter to the Colossians, and this week we come to the end of that. Our study has been titled Crux. Uh, Next week, we are beginning a new series. This is going to be a series in the Old Testament book of Exodus, and the title we've given that series is Be Set Free. I'm really excited about getting back into the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite things to do in a setting like this as a church is for us to study the Old Testament because in it we get to see these pictures and these foreshadowings of Jesus and we get to discover how all of these things were designed by God and orchestrated by God throughout the years and centuries to prepare the way for Jesus and to point to him and so it's a it's a great way to uh, study and we're going to start that next week. But today I'm excited about finishing this book and this series we've been doing called Crux. The word crux, by the way, is the Latin word for the cross. And the core message of the book of Colossians is that the cross of Jesus Christ is the crux of all of history, of our lives personally, and of our destinies eternally. So let's begin today by reading our text, which comes from Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful, in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church in Laodicea and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And, see, uh, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask that as we study it now, as we delve into it, as we seek you for how these words apply to our lives today, Lord, would you instruct us by your spirit? Would you work in our lives, Lord? Would you transform us by your word? And we pray that you would do that work in this place and in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. So picture this with me. Picture that you're lying in bed. but you're awake, right? You've all had those moments. You're lying awake in bed at night, and there's total quiet, right? There's no TV, no radio, nothing playing. It's just you alone with your thoughts. What does your mind automatically wander to? Think about that. What are the things which your, your thought life defaults to, right? When nothing else is going on, when you've got no other distractions, this is the thing that you tend towards thinking about. What is that for you? Or think about it this way. If there is... Anything in your life about which you have ever said, I have given my life for this thing, or I've dedicated my life to this. You know, you think about high-level athletes like those who compete in the Olympics and stuff like that. Their lives are so focused, so consumed with their sport, it affects every area of their lives. It affects how they eat, it affects how they sleep, they make sacrifices for it in what they do and where they go and, and what they give up so that they can train. And it's no stretch for them to say, this sport is my life. You know, when I lie in bed at night, this is what my mind wanders to. This is where my thought life defaults to. This sport or this thing is my life. And I wonder, what is it for you? Is it uh, business? Is it your job? For some people, it might be your family. You say, my family is my life. And you think, Oh, well, that's a good thing, right? Like, that's how it should be. But the Bible actually calls us to something even greater than that, something which applies to every person at every stage in life and is bigger than any of these things which people tend to make the focus of their lives. For a Christian, rather than uh, work or even family, Jesus is our life, knowing him, making him known, pursuing him, and doing his will. And we are called to make that the defining focus, the central pursuit of our lives. And Why? Because he is the only one worthy of all of your life. His mission is the only mission grand enough and significant enough to be worthy of giving your life for and dedicating your life to. He is the only one who can fulfill the deepest longings and the deepest needs that you have. In Colossians chapter three, Paul says this interesting phrase. He says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ who is your life, Anything else is far too small, far too trivial, far too temporary to be worthy of being the central focus of your life. You know, no one ever gets the end of their life and says, I really wish I would have spent more time at the office, right? C.S. Lewis famously says, he says, don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. And yet that's exactly what many people do, right? When they... um, and if they do lose those things, it causes, of course, despair and a loss of sense of purpose and joy. So we need something bigger. We need something that is truly worthy of dedicating our lives to and giving our lives for. And the one thing which is worthy of that is Jesus. Paul the Apostle, he writes to the Philippians, he says, For me to live is Christ's and to die is gain. In Christ we have something that is bigger than life, not even death can separate us from it. It can only bring us closer to it. But here's the interesting thing that Paul has been showing us here in Colossians, that if you make him, if you make Jesus the central focus of your life, if you make him your life, then all the other things, the personal aspirations and the work and the family, they fall then into their proper place if you put him first. If Jesus is your life, And not family or work or anything else. If Jesus is your life, it will not detract from your role at work or or as a family person, but it will put those things in their proper place and will actually make you a better business owner, better worker, better student, better family member. And so today as we come to the end of this book, we are going to see how the gospel message of who Jesus is and what he has done speaks to the following areas. First of all, private spirituality. Second, Uh, public relations, as we're going to call it, and thirdly, friendship. So private spirituality, public relations, and friendship. The title of today's message is Jesus, Our Life. Now, the theme of Paul's letter to the Colossians is the uniqueness of the Christian gospel. And in this letter, here's what he's focused on so far. He's focused on the uniqueness of who Jesus is, the unique message of the gospel of grace, and the unique power of of the gospel to transform a person's life. And that third one, that unique power of the gospel to transform a person's life is what the final two chapters of this letter have been all about. When you put your faith in Jesus, you become a new person uh, with a new identity and a new power in your life. The spirit of God actually comes into you and does a work of transformation. And this change is so significant that it is as if you have died to who you were and you've been born again. You're a new creation with a new life. And with that new life comes this new identity. With that new life comes a new trajectory in life. And so here in the final two chapters of Colossians, we're learning what this new life looks like, this new life that is centered on Christ, that is focused on pursuing him and what it looks like for us to live that out. So first of all, let's talk about private spirituality. We read this in verses two through four. And the first thing we see is that if Jesus is your life, the result will be a vibrant spirituality which is characterized by steadfast prayer. We see that in the life of Jesus, that he would often go away to a secluded place and he would pray. And prayer for Jesus, as for us, it was his lifeline, his connection to God the Father. And I think that sometimes we have too small of a view of the purpose and the nature of prayer. Because notice something about Paul and his prayers here in in this uh, section, what he asks for prayer for. After encouraging them to be steadfast in prayer, kind of encouraging them in prayer in general, then he says that he wants their prayer life to be characterized by thanksgiving. Now again, remember where Paul was when he wrote this letter. This is one of his four prison epistles that he wrote from custody, being in jail in Rome, waiting a trial. He was awaiting a trial where he was likely to lose his life. And yet, we see a man who, in spite of those things, is thankful and he's encouraging others to be thankful as well. And so the question we have to ask, I mean, if you really think about this is, how can a person be thankful in a situation like that? Or maybe you've got a situation in your life where you feel stuck or you feel trapped, a hard situation, the kind of situation that you wouldn't have chosen for yourself. How can you possibly be thankful in a situation like that? Well, the reason that Paul could be thankful despite his circumstances was because he was absolutely convinced of two things. First of all, he's absolutely convinced of God's love for him. And secondly, he was absolutely convinced of God's absolute sovereignty over every situation. And let me ask you, are you convinced of those two things, that God absolutely loves you? And secondly, that God is big enough to do anything, Because if you've got those two things, think about how they work together. If those two things are true, and they are, then what it means is this, that you can trust that God is in control and his plan, whatever's happening in your life, is for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. But I want you to see what that perspective, the influence that that perspective had on Paul in what he asks for prayer for. Look at his prayer request in verses 3 and 4. He says, pray for us. And what is he praying for? Remember, he's in jail. And what does he say? Pray for us. That God would open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear how I ought to speak. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was the one in jail, my prayer request would be something more like, pray that I get out of here because I don't like being in jail and I don't like being chained to people and not having any privacy and not being able to leave this room, right? Like, pray that when I go on trial that they don't find me guilty so that I don't die. Like, please pray for that. But that's somehow not what Paul asks for, is it? Now, certainly Paul believed that God could do those things. You know, in Acts chapter 16, we read about how Paul and Silas, one night they were in Philippi and they were in jail. They get arrested for talking about Jesus in the town. And God sends this earthquake, which causes the doors of the prison to come open. In Acts chapter 12, we read about how Peter was one time arrested and the the Christians prayed and God miraculously sprung him out of jail. And so it wasn't that Paul didn't believe that God could do things like that. Of course he did. He had seen it happen before. Well, then what was his reason for not asking to be set free? Well, see, here's what it was. It was that Paul had an understanding of God's providence, that God orchestrates the events and the comings and goings of our lives. And that it was also this, that Paul had a desire to be used by God, which was greater than his desire for a comfortable life. His desire to be used by God was greater than his desire for a comfortable life. And so, whether he's in jail or whether he's not in jail, Paul's desire is that God would accomplish his will through his life. He's totally given himself over to God, that God would, he says, God, I just pray that you'd open doors for ministry. And whether they're here in jail or whether they're not, whatever it is, Lord, use me. Give me the ability to speak clearly, communicate the gospel effectively, wherever that may be. See, here's the thing some people pray. Because they consider God useful. But people who understand the gospel pray because they consider God beautiful. I'll say it again because it's very important. Some people pray because they consider God useful, potentially useful to them. But other people who understand, people who understand the gospel, gospel people pray because they consider God beautiful. See, Paul understood the gospel, and because of that, he doesn't primarily view God as useful, but as beautiful, and he, he, God is someone he wants to know. God is someone he wants to worship. God is someone he wants to serve, and that's what happens when you really get a hold of the gospel in your mind. They understand the depth of your lostness and the breadth of God's greatness and the height of God's mercy and love for you. See, uh, I, I know about these bumper stickers that are out there. Maybe you've seen them. They say, uh, they say pray it works, right? Like, you should pray because it works. And you know, you think about that and you think, well, yeah, that's true kind of, but only kind of, right? Like, and I say that with a little caveat. The thing is, there are times when prayer doesn't work, so to say. I mean, I mean, not at least in the way that the person who's got the bumper sticker is expecting it to work. Let me give you an example. And you might pray, "God, you know, let me get that job." Or, God, please don't let this diagnosis come back positive. Or, God, please don't let this thing happen that I'm afraid of happening. And sometimes, even though you prayed, you don't get the job and the diagnosis does, does come back positive, and that thing does happen to you, and so what, what do you do then? Well, there are a few ways that people tend to react in these situations. One way is that they chalk it up to what you might call user error, right? Like, uh, they go down the list of all the things that they might have done wrong, which caused their prayer not to work, so to say, right? Like, was there any secret sin in your life? Did you pray in Jesus' name? Did you have enough faith when you prayed? Did you visualize it happening, right? Did you pray long enough? Did you pray hard enough to go on the list of you know what is the user error that I must have committed that obviously caused this to fail the other thing that people tend to do the other way that people sometimes react is to get upset with God they say well hey I did all the right things I did what depended on me I prayed for this and yet I didn't get the outcome that I wanted therefore well I guess prayer doesn't work or maybe God isn't there or maybe God just doesn't care And as a result, what do we do? We get down on ourselves or we get angry with God or we give up praying altogether. But at the root of these assumptions is a fundamental misunderstanding of what prayer is. See, prayer is not trying to get God to see things your way. Prayer is getting us to see things His way. Prayer is not about coercing. It's about communicating. Prayer is not about getting God to accomplish your agenda. It's about getting us on board and accomplishing His agenda. You see, we see Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, on the night before he was crucified, and he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, and he asks three times, he says, Father, please let this cup pass from me. But in in a way, you could say it didn't work, did it? In the sense that it didn't work in the sense that he didn't get what he asked for. But in another sense, in a greater sense, it did work, of course it worked, because Jesus says, Okay, but not my will, but your will be done. Not what I'd prefer, but how you've willed it for me. And Jesus, as he's wrestling in prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane, stressed out so much that he literally sweat blood. What that means is that his face was so contorted by stress and anxiety that the capillaries in his face were breaking, blood is exuding from his pores. And the end result, though, of this time in the Garden of wrestling in prayer is that his heart and his mind come into alignment with the heart and the mind of God. And from that point on, we don't see any more sweating of blood, rather we see a man who sets his face steadfast towards the cross understanding that this is God's good and perfect plan for him to work through his life in this way for him to do this thing and even though he had several opportunities to escape it this is the thing that always astounds me when I think about the cross in Gethsemane is that even though Jesus had many opportunities to get out of there if he wanted to to escape the cross if he had wanted to I mean he could have run away he, he could have just took, taken off right there in the garden before the soldiers got to him. Could have gone into hiding, could have run away. He could have pled his case even when he gets on trial. He could have pled his case before the high priest, before Pontius Pilate. There's a good chance that he could have even swayed the crowd or reasoned his way out of it, swayed the crowd to, to not execute him, but to execute Barnabas. But instead, he sets his face towards the cross, focused more on the will of God than on his own comfort. And he's able to pray on the cross for those who are hurting him. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't realize what they're doing. Now may we be those who, like Paul and like Jesus, we cultivate this life of prayer that seeks communion with God, that seeks to have our hearts and our minds changed to match and conform with his heart and his will. May we be those who who look upon Jesus and what he did for us and may it cause us not to see God primarily as useful to us, but as beautiful to us. Secondly, let's talk in verse 5 and 6. We have this section which I'm going to call public relations. And here's the point. When Jesus is your life, the result is not only a rich inward life of, of private spirituality, but it also affects, it shapes your outward life of how you relate to other people. You know, I remember shortly after I became a Christian, I realized there was something about myself that wasn't good, right? Like, I realized that I had two groups of friends. On the one hand, I had this one group of friends who I'd hang out with, and we would act in a decidedly not Christian way. And then I had had these other friends, and when I, uh, you know, I hung out with them, we went to church together, we'd go to, like, Bible study together. And depending on which group I was with, I would act completely differently, I would talk differently, use different language, I would use, uh, I would tell different kinds of jokes, and I was very careful never to let these two groups of people meet each other, because if they did, it'd be like worlds colliding, it'd be super awkward, because each of these groups knew me to be a different person, really. Now, how many of you can relate to that? But it was an extremely freeing moment in my life when I determined To be the same person all the time. You see, that's actually what it means to have integrity. Integrity means that you're the same person no matter what setting you're in. Uh, To have integrity and be the same person all the time. No matter if I was at work or church or family, I would be the same person all the time. You know, there are are some people who are great at private spirituality, but where they can afford to grow is in this area, public relations, and living out their Christian life in their workplace, and their relationships with people outside the church. Apostle here he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. You know, in the book of James, God reminds us that our lives are like a vapor, a vapor that appears for a moment and then it disappears. In other words, we have a short time here on earth and we don't know which day is going to be our last. We have no guarantees. And so make good use of the time that you've been given as regards, especially people who don't yet have the hope of the gospel. That's who he's speaking about and how we relate to them. He says, let your speech Always be gracious and seasoned with salt. This reminds us of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses saltiness, then what is it good for? He says it's given up that which makes it unique, that which gives it value and purpose. And that salt that he refers to there refers to the the knowledge of God says, let your speech always be flavored with it, a dash of it here and there in your conversations and your interactions with people. And he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You know, one of the most important roles of the church is, on the one hand, right, we are a place of celebration, celebration of the gospel, place of celebration and worship, but also we're a place of equipping for ministry. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, that is the role that God has given the church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. it's a big part of what shapes what we do here as a church, by the way. It's why we teach the children's ministry the way that we teach it. It's why we offer school of ministry and discipleship classes at church. It's why we teach the Bible the way that we do on Sunday mornings. One of our key goals is to equip you So that as you leave this place, as you go out into your daily life and into your neighborhoods and workplaces, that you can be ambassadors for Christ and that you'll be equipped to answer people and to speak into situations uh, as people have questions and, and to bring the hope of the gospel into your interactions with other people. You know, it's been said that the greatest dilemma that modern people have in regard to God is the question of if God exists, then why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? In fact, if you, think, you remember, Nietzsche famously said, God is dead and we killed him, right? But you know, when Nietzsche was saying that, he wasn't, he wasn't saying that as a good thing. He was saying that as a bad thing. He was saying, it's, this is what we've done as a society. We've killed God, uh, you know, and it's not good, was essentially what he's saying. But here's the thing. Uh, why did he say that? He said that the reason why... People have a hard time believing in God. is because they look all around them and they see injustice and suffering in the world. And so it's just an example. You know, how do we answer people? How do we bring an answer? This is the big question that modern uh, society struggles with. The question of if God exists, then why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? How do we answer that? You know, the way most people think and the way that traditional religions teach is this kind of motif that, right, if you do what's good, then God will reward you. If you are a good moral person and you do all the right things, then God will reward you with a nice, comfortable, good life. And if you're immoral, well then God will punish you and bad things will happen to you. And that's how most people expect life to work. The problem is when you look around, that's oftentimes not how it works at all. You you start looking around and you start seeing that people who are prospering they're, they're lying, cheating, and stealing, and yet they're prospering. And, and you see innocent people, you see children suffering. You see that good people, so to say, get cancer. Wonderful, lovely people get trampled on. Nice guys finish last. And you look at that and you say, this is not fair. It's not right. And so the conclusion that many people come to, especially in our modern day and age, right, is this. Well, then we've only got a few options. Either, number one, God does not exist Or, number two, if God does exist, well then he's certainly not a good God because clearly he's totally aloof and he's uninvolved and disinterested with putting an end to the suffering and injustice here on earth. I read about a a play, I'll just give you a little background. Right after World War II in Germany, many people, you know, at the end of the war, they were waking up to realize the atrocities that had been committed in the Holocaust by their own countrymen. And they began to ask the question as they looked around and realized the things that had been done under the Nazi regime during the Holocaust. And they began to ask the question, who's responsible for this? And they would look to each other and say, did you you did this? How could you do something like this? And the response of everybody to that question was, hey, it's not my fault. I was just following orders. It was the guy above me. He's the one you need to talk to. And so there was a, a German playwright at this time who wrote a play. And the title of the play was The Sign of Jonah. And as part of this play, right, the play begins and it's this thing which is going on in German society. Everybody's asking each other, hey, how could you do this? You know, this atrocity that was committed. And everybody kept saying, it wasn't me. It's not my fault. It was the guy above me. It's his fault. You need to talk to him. And so in this play, they keep going up the ladder, right? Talking to the superior officer. And the superior officer, well, he says that you told him to do this. And the guy says, yeah, but it wasn't my fault. It was the guy above me. And it goes all the way up. And in the end, They all come to the same conclusion in in this play. And that's this. Who's to blame for all the terrible things that have happened? Well, it's the guy at the very top. In other words, it's not our fault. It's God's fault. God is to blame for all of the evil and injustice in the world. And at the end of this play, they actually put God on trial. And they find him guilty. And they sentence him. And this is the sentence that they pronounce on God. This is a quote from the play. He must become a human being, a wanderer on the earth, deprived of his rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty, and he himself shall die. And he shall lose his son, and he shall suffer the agonies of fatherhood. And when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed. Do you see that? Here's the conclusion they came to. They came to the conclusion that there is a God. There must be a God. And if there is a God, though, we've got a problem because this world is full of terrible tragedies and injustices and sicknesses and things that just aren't fair and aren't right. And the only way for this to be made right is that God himself needs to come here and he needs to experience it himself. And he himself shall die. And that's the exact thing, though, don't you see? That's the exact thing that God has done for us in Jesus. That is the message of the gospel. The gospel message is that God is not aloof. He's not disinterested. He's not just far away and doesn't have any interest in, or care He's not disconnected. He's not just watching things from the comfort of heaven and and not doing anything, but he has come to us. He entered into our fallen world and he took our curse upon himself in order to end it, in order to make it right, in order to put an end to injustice and, and suffering once and for all. The message of the gospel is that God did come among us and that he bore the full weight of what is wrong with this world and he even died under it so that one day he could end evil without ending us. And there's a place in the book of Genesis, maybe you remember the story, God puts a man to the test, the ultimate test, by asking him to give up his son, his only son, whom he loves, that specific language. And he says to Abraham, after the test is over, and of course he doesn't make him give up his son, but at the end of the test he says, now I know that you love me, because you did not spare your son, your only son. And do you see that when we understand the gospel, we say that exact same phrase back to God? We can say that same thing back to Him. I know that you love me because you did not spare your son, your only son. In Jesus, on the cross, we, we find the answers to the riddles of life. And so, getting back to where we started, in our interactions with people who don't share our beliefs, may we walk with wisdom, may we walk with integrity, because the time is short. May our speech always be gracious and seasoned with the salt of the knowledge of God and the salt of the word of God. May we be those who know how to speak in a way that shows how the gospel speaks to the things that people are wondering about and struggling with and wrestling over. And this brings us to our final section, the final section of the book, starting in verse seven, where we talk about the topic of friendship. This is the other area. When Jesus is your life, this is another area it affects, Friendship. You know, really the content of this letter of of Paul to the Colossians comes to an end in verse 6. And from verse 7 to verse 18, we have just kind of some closing comments, some shout-outs to some friends. And in his various letters, this is a common theme uh, throughout Paul's letters, and he mentions over 100 people in all his different letters, 100 unique people by name whom he counted as friends. Now, the point here for us is this. In this topic of Jesus, our life, is this. Christianity is not an individual pursuit. It's a team sport. It's not an individual pursuit. It's a team sport. In order for you to become the person who God is calling you to be, you need other people around you. And this is one of the reasons, for example, why we want to see everybody here at Whitefields involved in a community group. That's our desire. So I encourage you, check it out, sign up. See, in order for you to grow, you need other people around you. You need people who have different perspectives and different gifts so that together you can spur each other on to faith and good works. See, what you need, what I need, what we need is spiritual friendship. Now, I say that word friendship with a bit of hesitation, and here's why. Because I think it can easily be misunderstood Because when I say the the word friendship, uh, a lot of people in their mind are going to go to this idea that, oh, so I need to find people who I like to be around, right? That's what friendship's about, right? People I like to be around. People who are maybe my same age and same status in life. Uh, People who share my particular interests and hobbies and, and things like that. But that's not at all what I have in mind when I'm talking about spiritual friendship. What I have in mind is, is how C.S. Lewis described friendship. He said this, friendship happens when two people see the same truth. He said the posture of friendship, as opposed to the posture of love, the two people who are in love, are, their posture is they're looking at each other saying, I love you, I love you. But two people who are friends, their posture is two people standing side by side, looking at a third thing and saying, I love that. That's what, the, that's what creates friendship. And that's why he says in this one place in his book, uh, The Four Loves, he says, this is why those pathetic people who want nothing more than friendship can never find friendship. Because someone says to them, do you see the same truth that I see? And they say, well, I don't really care about that at all. I just want you to like me. And he said, no friendship can ever exist. Because the prerequisite for friendship is that you have to want something, you have to love something more than friendship itself. And so for Christians, this is what we have. We have this common truth that we see. And it's not, these, these friendships, these kind of friendships I'm talking about are not based on you know, common age or, or race or social status or shared hobbies or being at a similar stage of life. I'm talking about something which transcends all of those things. And that is that we have understood and embraced Jesus as our savior and the gospel message of who he is and what he's done for us. And see, you and I need this kind of spiritual friendship, especially with people who are different than you. So when I encourage you to have spiritual friendship, I want you to purposefully seek out people who are different than you, but you share this one thing in common. Because especially when you get people who are different than you, you build each other up. You receive and you give. You teach and you learn. See, Christianity was never meant to be an individual pursuit, but a team sport. So let's quickly look through some of these people that Paul counted as friends. A lot of them have very interesting backstories that we could talk about for a long time, but we're just going to take a quick look through them. In verse 7 through 9, he mentions this man named Tychicus. Now Tychicus, he was a man who the Colossians had never met before, but he was the one who would be carrying the letter from Paul in Rome to these people individually you know, personally to the Colossians. And along with him in verse 9, we read about this man onesimus now if that name rings a bell for you then good because it should the letter of philemon one of the smallest books shortest books in the bible it's one of the shortest books in the new testament it's just one chapter long it was written about this man onesimus see here's what happened onesimus was a runaway slave who had come to rome after running away from uh, the person that he was in uh, you know slavery to and at one point, he had become a Christian. We don't know when, but he became a Christian sometime along the way, and he joined the church in Rome. And while Paul was in Rome in jail, he came to know about this man, Onesimus, who was an escaped slave. And as they got to talking, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you find out that the world is a really small place. He comes to find out that Paul actually knows the guy who used to be his master who he ran away from. That guy's name was Philemon, he's the guy that he writes the letter to, and he's like, crazy, small world, right? Well, see, most slaves in that day were not slaves in the way like we had slavery here in the United States. They were more of what we would call indentured servants, meaning that they had agreed to work for a determined period of time in exchange for uh, a sum of money, whether that was a loan or for some people it was to get out of debt, for some people it was a way of escaping poverty. And so Onesimus had entered into this kind of contractual agreement with this man Philemon, but somewhere along the line, he had taken the money and he had bailed. He had run away, and uh, that's not good, right? So Paul says to Onesimus when he comes to find out about this, he says, Onesimus, you know, now that you've become a Christian, the right thing for you to do, the good thing for you to do, you need to go to Philemon and you need to look him in the eye and you need to apologize for what you did. But Paul at the same time also writes a letter to Philemon that he sends with Onesimus. And in that letter, he says this He says, quote, I want you to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. He says, I want you to forgive him everything. And whatever he owes you, Paul says, I want you to count it to my account. Credit it to me, I'm going to pay back what he owes you. It's an awesome story of redemption. We see Paul paying Onesimus' debt just as Jesus paid his debt. And that's the kind of gospel reenactment that we've been talking about here in this letter that Paul has been talking about in Colossians as the model and the motivation for the Christian life. This is what Jesus did for me and now I want to do it for other people. In verse 10, we read about this man Aristarchus. And we've talked about him before because in Acts chapter 27, when we studied through Acts, we saw this guy at the end of the book. He accompanied Paul, you know, from his imprisonment in Palestine, he accompanied him on his boat journey to Rome. And it would seem from what we read here that Aristarchus stayed with Paul for the entire duration of the time that he was in custody in Rome. Talk about a friend, right? Like being able to give up Your own freedom just to be there for your friend. Now, what's more, his name, Aristarchus, as you might pick out, aristocrat, right, it indicates that he was from an aristocratic background. So, this man, on top of everything, we see that he gave up wealth, he gave up status in order to minister to a friend. And that reminds us of someone else, doesn't it? Who also gave up ultimate wealth and ultimate status in order to minister to us in our need. Who called us his friends. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus. See, here's another example of someone living out their life in response to and in reenactment of what Jesus had done for them. In verse 10, we read about Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, this guy is named at different places. Sometimes he's called John. Sometimes he's called Mark. Generally, he's called John Mark because it seems that he had two names. Uh, And this is Barnabas' cousin. This is the guy who Paul and Barnabas got in a big fight over in Acts chapter 14. Paul couldn't stand this guy, right? Paul did not want to be around this guy at that time. See, John Mark had come with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but halfway through, he had bailed on them. He deserted them in a time of need. And so when they were getting ready to go on their second missionary journey, and Barnabas invited John Mark to come with them again, Paul said, look, if your cousin comes with us, then I'm not going. And Barnabas said, well, then fine, don't go. And Paul said, well, fine, I won't go. And they split up, and they didn't talk to each other anymore. They parted ways. It wasn't a good thing. I mean, ultimately, we can say that God used that bad thing for good, But it's certainly not a model worth following. They got in a fight. They got in a disagreement. They stopped talking to each other. But now many years later, look who's in Rome visiting Paul. John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. This is wonderful to see this reconciliation that took place, this forgiveness. You know, in the body of Christ as redeemed people, there's no place for holding grudges. There's no place for holding on to bitterness where Christ has forgiven and reconciled us to himself. In verse 12, we read about Epaphras, and he says, Epaphras is laboring for you in prayer, and he's working hard on your behalf. You see, Epaphras was their pastor. He was the pastor of three churches, which were all in the same area. Church in Colossae, they're listed here in that verse. Church in Colossae, and he also had planted two other churches in Hierapolis and Laodicea. He was a busy man, but he was a man who was busy about the work of the Lord. In verse 14, we read about Luke, who he calls the beloved physician. This is, of course, the man who wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. In verse 14, also, we read about a man named Demas. Now, he's interesting because he's mentioned in three of Paul's letters. He's mentioned here in Colossians. He's mentioned in Philemon, which was, of course, written at the same time. And he's also mentioned in 2 Timothy, which which was written several years later during Paul's second Roman imprisonment. And there we read that Paul, or sorry, Demas, in that last letter that Paul writes, here he writes, you know, he's a companion, he's a worker for the gospel. Uh, but in 2 Timothy, Paul says that Demas had forsaken him and that he had even forsaken his faith. Now, we don't know very much about Demas. All we have here are the faint outlines of a man who at one time was a Christian, even involved in ministry, but later on... Fell away. And that should be such a sobering reminder for us of how important it is to abide in Christ and remain connected to the the source and the root of our life. In verse 15, we'll end here, we mention Nympha and the church that met in her house. Now this gets to the idea of, you know, early churches were organized in people's homes. Christianity was not a legally recognized religion in the Roman Empire for the first couple hundred years, and so they couldn't get permission to purchase or to build their own buildings. And since few homes were large, there were usually several congregations in a city, and they would meet in different people's homes, and they would have a pastor or an elder overseeing those churches. And for the first 200 or so years of Christianity, this is how the majority of churches met. But again, the reason they did that was out of necessity. As soon as they could have their own buildings they did and the point is this god can work in any setting he can work in you know big fancy church buildings and he can work in people's homes the importance is that the building itself should never become the focus of the church it should only and always ever be a tool for the furtherance of god's work through the church and i think that's something for it's important for us to keep in mind as we start taking steps as a church to get a building of our own in the future. But Paul concludes the letter about the uniqueness of the gospel and the greatness of Jesus by taking the pen in his own hands and concluding with these words. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you for the uniqueness of who you are Lord, that as we we look upon the face of Jesus, we don't just see another good man who taught good things, who taught morality, but we see God, you yourself, come to us to put an end to injustice and evil and suffering in the world, to take take our curse upon yourself so that you could destroy evil without destroying us. So, Lord, we thank you for that, and we thank you for the unique message of your grace, Lord, that is not because of who we are or what we have done that you would accept us, but because of who you are and what you have done. And as we reflect on that, it causes us to just glorify you all the more. And Lord, we thank you for the unique power of the gospel in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you come into our lives, you transform us from the inside out, you make us into new people for your glory and for our good. And we do pray, Lord, that you would let that be true of our lives, that Jesus would be our life, And Lord, we we also reflect on that idea of how time is short and we're called to redeem the time and make the best use of it. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who would say, you know, there are things in my life which I know that God has been wanting me to change, that God has been wanting to change within me, but I've been resisting. Maybe there are even people here today who would say, I know that God wants me to give my life to Him, but I've been dragging my feet. Lord, may we see that, that there's no guarantees and time is short. And Lord, I pray that today would be the day when we would say yes to you in every area of our lives. That we would be able to say legitimately, Christ, who is my life. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Crux, A verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.